It's Friday, October 29th. You've got Oz in your ears. The best of the best. Halloween, midterm elections. Oh, so scary. The best of the scary. There they stood, hoses in hand, the brave firefighters of Obion County, Tennessee, instructed by their boss to let Jean and Paulette Krennick's home burn to the ground, taking the family's dogs and cats with it, all because of a $75 fee that had been overlooked. Jean Krennick pleaded with the firemen, offered up the money, then tried to put out the blaze himself. His reward? a thorough tongue-lashing from that beady-eyed marshmallow Glenn Beck, who excoriated Cranick for trying to sponge off his neighbors. In the background, Glenn's radio show sidekick mocked Cranick's futile attempt to save his home and his pets. If Don Imus deserves to be suspended for his thoughtless racial slurs, then Beck has earned a place in the tunnel recently exited by the Chilean miners to contemplate the darkness of his heart. Beck's twisted response to the tragedy is no surprise, but he has been joined in the blogosphere and on the airwaves by a chorus of self-righteous reactionaries and compassion-free libertarians who display the specter of the Cranick smoking ruins as a warning to every citizen who thinks they can get away with sucking off the American dream. Are these troubled times tearing us apart? Are we so spooked by the overnight disappearance of the unlimited everything that will let a neighbor's house burn and his pets fry because of a late fee? Do Glenn Beck and his morally bankrupt minions have their fingers on the true pulse of this nation, a pulse so amped with fear that we are unable to reach out and save our brothers and sisters in distress? I don't think so. It's only a matter of time before we come out of shock, find our center, and put this nation back on its feet. As for Glenn and his ilk, the doggies and kitties whose fiery death they mocked wait for them at the gates of hell. <laughs> this is from factcheck.org. It's a nonpartisan organization that checks out political ads and such and, you know, and to find out just how much truth is there. Kentucky Republican Rand Paul said his Senate Democratic opponent, Jack Conway, has descended into the gutter after making a personal attack on Paul's college days in a recent ad. The ad says that during his student days, Paul was a member of a secret society at Baylor University that called the Holy Bible a hoax and was banned for mocking Christianity and Christ. And it asks, the ad, why did Rand Paul once tie a woman up and tell her to bow down before a false idol and say his God was Aqua Buddha? Oh boy, this, I'm telling you, this is a midterm to remember. Those allegations stem from a GQ story published in August. A former classmate of Paul's at Baylor, speaking anonymously, told a reporter that 30 years ago, Paul and a friend tied her hands, asked her to smoke marijuana, and then took her to a creek where they blindfolded her and told her to worship an aqua Buddha as her god. This is a man that may become a U.S. senator, along with Sharon Engel 
and Christine O'Donnell, just to mention a couple. Several media outlets reported the GQ story calling Paul a kidnapper, but it now appears that the incident was just a weird prank, not a kidnapping, at least according to the woman involved. But speaking anonymously, she told the Washington Post that she was merely being hazed by her friends. I went along because they were my friends, she said. There was an implicit degree of cooperation in the whole thing. I felt like I was being hazed. They came over to my house as friends that I knew, she told me. They immediately said, we're going to tie you up and go for a ride. I guess that's, you know, Rand Paul's idea of a nice time. Let's go see some friends, tie him up and take him for a ride. Uh. Though the GQ piece never used the word kidnapping uh, and quoted her saying the whole thing was a joke, subsequent media coverage has characterized the allegations this way, seemingly allowing Paul to keep the conversation focused on this one charge. He hasn't responded to questions about the blindfolding or the aqua Buddha. Paul doesn't deny the incident. He does deny that he engaged in a criminal kidnapping, though the Conway ad doesn't specifically accuse him of that. There is support for the ad's claim that Paul's college group, the Nose Brotherhood, that's N-O-Z-E, mocked Christianity. According to Politico, for example, the group's work often had a specifically anti-Christian tone as it made fun of the Baptist college's faith-based orientation. As for calling the Bible a hoax, that was done in a satirical article in the Nose Newsletter. The article, titled Fishy Bibles, claimed that the Bible's true author was a Clement Updike, 83 of Victor, California, and quoted him as saying, I wrote it as a lark. So that's who wrote the Bible. Okay, Victor, California. It's kind of rural. Certainly the, the Old Testament is very rural. I get it. Politico also reports that the group was indeed formally banned at one point by Baylor on grounds of sacrilege, but that happened two years before Paul arrived. They had made fun of not only the Baptist religion, but Christianity and Christ. Baylor President Herbert Reynolds told the student newspaper, The Lariat, according to Politico. Bow down and worship Aqua Buddha. Well, hey, guess what? If he loses... This is Rand Paul. Or even if he wins, he can start a whole new Rand Paul scent. What's that you're wearing, Paul? Hmm. Aqua Buddha. When I was flying down to Los Angeles recently, I just being on the plane brought back to me how different flight is, the, the whole atmosphere of airlines from the time when I started. Like when I w- would fly to go back to college, Back in the early 60s, late 50s, they'd pass out little uh, cigarette packages with like three cigarettes in them and mm. everybody was smoking. And I realized I grew up in an entirely smoked environment in planes. And I learned to smoke by watching my philosophy teacher and how everybody else got a chance to wait to answer their questions by by taking a smoke out of their pack. <laughs> smoke, smoke, smoke. Okay. Right. It's true. That and, was the time. And now USA Today, times have changed. Changed, okay, it says that heavy smoking in midlife, and most of those people on the plane were in their midlife, more than doubles your odds of developing Alzheimer's disease. Wow. According to a recent Kaiser mm. Permanente study, the study is the first to examine the long-term consequences of heavy smoking on Alzheimer's and vascular dementia, uh, says the principal investigator. From 1994, David, to 2008, researchers evaluated over 21,000 men and women in midlife. So it's a huge big sample, cohort. Big yeah. sample. And continued following them on average for 23 years. Wow, what a okay. great study. You know, Kaiser does come up with this stuff. They do use their money for this. 
Compared with non-smokers, those who had smoked two packs of cigarettes a day, which back in the smoking days was very common, right, increased their risk of developing Alzheimer's by more than 157% and had 172% higher risk of developing vascular dementia, the second most common form of dementia after Alzheimer's. Wow. The research is, is public, has just been published in the Archives of Internal Medicine. It's totally legit, okay? Though the study was observational, the authors have theories about what might be going on. People who smoke have increased inflammation, and we know that inflammation also plays a role in Alzheimer's. Dementia experts say the Kaiser research is strong. Sounds strong, right? Hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, if the sample is big and the time period is, is really long, and the statistic is enormously high. Uh, you know, and it says this study is particularly good because it separates out vascular dementia from, uh, and Alzheimer's, it says, uh, who notes that some early studies on smoking and dementia suggested a protective effect for some reason, but it's not. There's no protection from smoking. It's the other way around. So mm-hmm. that's another good thing. The other novel aspect is that they got a large enough sample to look at different ethnic groups, and it shows that smoking's effect on dementia does not differ based on race. There, there was thought that it did. Uh, A key question for worried smokers, if I quit, will I lower my risk for dementia? The answer is unknown, but Whitmer says researchers are planning a follow-up study to find out. The bottom line, if there's somebody out there who hasn't heard smoking's bad for you, (laughs) they must live in a cave somewhere. Yeah, yeah, it's probably Osama bin Laden. He probably smokes. He probably lives in a cave and he smokes. Well, it's a a sealed environment, too. I mean, (laughs) excuse me. I can't remember. Who are you? I can't remember your name. Here's a look at what's happening in AFPAC from CNN. Osama bin Laden and his deputy, Ayman al-Zawahiri, are believed to be hiding close to each other in houses in northwest Pakistan, but are not together, a senior NATO official said. Well, see, there are houses to live in in Pakistan. There's been no housing bubble there, all right? Nobody, for example, jacked up the price of Pakistani real estate. So Osama and Ayman could find a nice place. They don't have to live in a cave. Nobody in Al-Qaeda is living in a cave, said the official, who declined to be named because of the sensitivity of the intelligence matters involved. What? The fact that he can tell me that Osama and Ayman are not living in a cave, that's sensitive intelligence? Hey, I'm not living in a cave. Tell the world. Rather, al-Qaeda's top leadership is believed to be living in relative comfort, protected by locals and some members of the Pakistani intelligence services, the official said. Pakistan has repeatedly denied protecting members of the al-Qaeda leadership, but of course Pakistan does nothing but lie. The official said the general region where bin Laden is likely to have moved around in recent years ranges from the mountainous Chitral area in the far northwest near the Chinese border to the Kuram Valley, which adjoins Afghanistan's Tora Bora, one of the Taliban strongholds during the U.S. invasion in 2001. I believe it was in Tora Bora that he was when he was supposed to have the crosshairs on him and didn't pull the uh, trigger. Of course, that can be apocryphal. Tora Bora is also the region from which bin Laden is believed to have escaped during a U.S. bombing raid in the late 2001 period. U.S. officials have long said there have been no confirmed sightings of bin Laden or Zawahiri for several years. Not true. The area that the official described covers hundreds of square miles of some of the most rugged uh, terrain in Pakistan inhabited by fiercely independent tribes. The official also confirmed the U.S. assessment that Mullah Omar, the leader of the Taliban, has moved between the cities of Quetta and Karachi in Pakistan over the last several months is correct. 
Another U.S. official who spoke on condition of anonymity said the exact locations of both bin Laden and Zawahiri are unknown other than they are somewhere in the tribal areas of Pakistan near the Afghanistan border. So that's as good as it gets, right? If you're going to play capture the flag, you're going to have trouble finding him. If we knew where he was, in a house, in an apartment, a villa, in a schwitz, or an underground cave or bunker, we would have gotten him, said the official. We can't rule out he may be in a cave one day and a house in a city on another. Well, maybe he's got a real estate agent that's showing him property. Try this, Sama. Try this cave tonight. It's a little cool, but it's fresh air and it's got a great look at Tora Bora. Tomorrow we'll take you into Islamabad, put you in a nice smoky area in the city, and you can meet some of your followers. The official referred to CIA Director Leon Panetta's comment a few months ago that the United States has not any precise information about bin Laden's whereabouts for many years. And for this, we need the CIA. The NATO official, who has day-to-day senior responsibilities for the war, offered a potentially grimmer view. Now we're getting a, a view of the war altogether. A grimmer view than has been publicly offered by others, mainly the United States, and David Petraeus. Up, Petraeus, up, Petraeus, right. Every year, the insurgency can generate more and more manpower despite coalition military attacks, he said. Get that. No problem coming up with more men, regardless of how many boots we put on the ground. Although there have been, uh, has been security progress in areas where coalition forces are stationed, he said, in other areas, we don't know what's going on. He pointed to an internal assessment that there are 500,000 to a million disaffected men between the ages of 15 and 25 in the Afghan-Pakistan border region. Most are Afghan Pashtuns, and they make up some of the 95% of the insurgency who carry out attacks just to earn money rather than to fight for a hardcore Taliban ideology, he said. And where does the money come from? Saudi Arabia and the heroin trade. It's a great war. The official said it is now absolutely vital for the Afghan government to address the needs of this group with security, economic development, and jobs in order for the war to end and for Afghanistan to succeed. We are running out of time, he said. Like Karzai has the time and the breadth right now to think about offering economic development and such. He's worried about waking up in the morning and finding out he doesn't have a head on his shoulders. The NATO official said the entire scenario is made more complex by the fact that there is a huge criminal enterprise in Afghanistan dealing in human, drug, and mineral trafficking. These crimes are also tied into the insurgency and, of course, to Karzai's brother, the dope dealer. He acknowledged the overall strategy now is to increase offensive airstrikes and ground attacks in order to increase the pressure on the Taliban and insurgent groups to come to the negotiating table with the current Afghan government. Well, you know something? We're trying to bring them to the table right now, even though we haven't been able to, in quotes, degrade them. Uh, Hillary Clinton and Gates both said we're facilitating bringing the Taliban to the table. Nothing about we're going to beat the crap out of them and then bring them to the table. But the official caution, hardcore Taliban groups such as the Keta Shura run by Mullah Omar, the Haqqanis, the HIG, Hebzi Islami Gulbuddin, and the Pakistani Taliban could still potentially muster as many as 30,000 fighters. 
The U.S. continues to face a more localized insurgency in the south. In places like Marja and the Helmand River Valley, the majority of the fighters captured there are within a few miles of their homes. Right now, the U.S. war plan, approved by President Barack Obama, extends through 2014, the official said. That is the official document that spells out matters such as troop rotation schedules. Ah, the U.S. military could sustain a war indefinitely, the official said, but the goal is to achieve reconciliation and allow the Afghan government to function and provide security and services to the people. Without that, he said, we will be fighting here forever. Uh, there are some politicians with a sense of humor. I don't mean just wacky wingnuts. I'm talking about my man, Alan Grayson, down in Florida, who has just been the wittiest Democrat on the block so far. Really? Tell yeah. me about it. Never wanted to shy away from quirky campaign antics. Made a new plea to supporters via email this week. Donate to Rush Limbaugh Mind Your Own Business Fund. <laughs> Well, at least it's a business fund to show that the Democrats are pro-business. Grayson, trying to make a final fundraising pitch in the last 15 days of the midterm, was nothing short of sassy in his challenge to the conservative media icon, the South of Politico. The Florida lawmakers campaign wrote in the email that Limbaugh had categorized Grayson as certifiably insane and then went on to list a long line of pop culture references to boost his case against Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh saying that I am certifiably insane is like George Clooney saying I'm good-looking. It's like Shaquille O'Neal saying that I'm big-boned. It's like Michael Jackson saying I can sing and dance. It's like Bill Gates saying I'm rich, Grayson said. All right? The colorful rhetoric is pretty classic. Grayson, who made a name for himself during the health care debate last year by saying that the GOP health care plan was for people to die quickly. <laughs> I loved it for that. I, uh, right on. Yeah, yeah. Grayson, who has taken an outspokenly liberal stand despite the moderate nature of his district, raised $967,000. In the last financial quarter, his largest quarterly haul of the cycle. So I think things are looking and, good and, for him. And did it did it come in five and tens from the local mom and dad? From the little people. little people. You know. From it, the middle class, small business, all of these icons. Up until the last two months, you know, I, I, there were three, let's say three, four, maybe five requests for donations a day. Day coming in to our email. Okay, right. yeah. there was the Democratic National Committee. There's the we elect the senators. There's the elect the Republic. Elect the you know the House. Elect House the unelectable is one of my favorites. Ah, yeah. it, it, anyway, all of these coming in, and, and now it's the big shiny ones, yeah. and they're for the other candidates. So you know, if I'm getting a big shiny mailer for somebody I wouldn't vote for dog catcher for, yeah. you know, the money is really, really racking up, and we're talking about uh, this is not a crucial district here. No, 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 the ones that really began to bother me, right, you know, is when I got one from Barack Obama, and it basically it said something like, I want to play basketball with you. <laughs> Yeah, I want to shoot some hoops with you, Pete. It didn't say that. It said something else like, I'd like you to uh, to go sail away with me, you know, on the presidential yacht, because if you give some money now, you'll be in this raffle, and so a certain number of people will do this. But it might just as well be, let's play horse in the basement of the White House. How would you like to qualify? Oh, boy. I went, please, stop treating me like an email address. And, and, and stop asking for money. Let me let me make this let me make this perfectly clear. I'm not going to give the Democratic Party 
any money at all. If you survive, you should survive on your own without my help, okay? Go, you, go, go win. Well, you're me. supporting, you're, you're using Oz to help support a lot of Democrats. And this is valuable. This is, you are truly an in-kind donor. Well, absolutely, yes. I, I, I would, but this is, uh, you know, doesn't the fairness doctrine apply to this program? <laughs> Fair, <laughs> doctrine. You got, oh, you really got Dave Maloney now. Let's just go off and have a good laugh. Okay. <laughs> Let's do the math. We're down 11.5 million jobs since 2008 and won't replace them for 20 years. Official unemployment is hovering around 10% and actual unemployment is closer to 18%. Municipalities and states perched on bankruptcy are shedding cradle-to-grave jobs. The infrastructure is crumbling, the public school system is in crisis, and foreclosures are at an all-time high. Corporate America has chosen to sit on $1.5 trillion in cash rather than invest in our economy. Just think what $2 billion a week would do to change the math. $2 billion, that's what we're spending every week in Afghanistan. It might be worth the sacrifice if two billion a week were bringing democracy with all its bells and whistles to Afghanistan, suppressing its heroin trade, and securing the country from the local jihadists who stone women and behead villagers to satisfy their thirst for power and sexual domination. It isn't buying any of that. Proof positive is the recent admission by our secretaries of state and defense that the U.S. is facilitating talks between the Taliban and what's left of Karzai's government. Our nine-year occupation of Afghanistan has been a failure. All that blood and treasure for nothing. When we leave Afghanistan and sneak back home, that country will be a lot worse off than when we charged in post-9-11. Back then, the Taliban were contained in the Kandahar region by Massoud's Northern Alliance and a relatively stable regime in Kabul. Now those vicious freaks are everywhere. What we'll leave behind is anarchy, the same gift we're leaving behind in Iraq. And we'll come home to anarchy. Where are we going to find jobs for 100,000 shell-shocked GIs? What have we got here for the other 100,000 contract mercenaries to guard? The empire is collapsing, simply because we can't afford it. So, we redo the math. We beat our swords into solar panels and do a hell of a lot more with a hell of a lot less. We learn to live with the reality that other cultures aren't a failed attempt at being us, and we get straight with the fact that nation-building begins at home. This from Politico. American politics, which has been hovering on the edge all year, has finally gone flying off it. A spate of recent episodes, including a couple of bizarre incidents over the weekend, show all manner of candidates on the 2010 stage abandoning self-control and embracing a campaign trail equivalent of road rage. In Alaska, Republican Joe Miller's private security guard Sunday night arrested a video-toting reporter, never mind that he had no authority to do so, setting off a round of recriminations that continued to echo Monday. Yeah, he arrested him and they handcuffed him. And he was using, 
Miller was using a local security force that does most of their time selling uh, army surplus to veterans. I mean, woo, what a great state. In Colorado, an impatient Representative Ed Perlmutter, the incumbent Democrat, irritably swatted the hand of Republican opponent Ryan Frazier during a televised debate, prompting Frazier to warn, don't hit me, man, come on. And in Kentucky on Sunday night, Republican Senate candidate uh, Rand Paul was so offended by an ad that Democrat Jack Conway ran, the spot accuses Paul of belonging to a group known for mocking Christianity and Christ, that he delivered a rebuke with echoes of the famous 1950s swat down of Joe McCarthy. Jack, have you no decency? Have you no shame? It's a great story. It's the Aqua Buddha story. We'll get into that later. These were only a few of the highlights of a campaign trail that, just 15 days before Election Day, has rarely sounded more peevish or less restrained by the customary civilities, which in a normal year would inhibit candidates from revealing how much they loathe each other. Instead, it seems the anger of the American voter is expressing itself in the faces of many American politicians. Trembling lips, florid cheeks, bulging eyes. It is the politics of indignation in full blossom, and the examples just keep coming. In Massachusetts, it wasn't 15-term incumbent Barney Frank, but his boyfriend, James Reedy, who showed up outside Frank's debate with Republican challenger Sean Bilat with a video camera to heckle Bilat in front of the press, according to a local blog. Bilat, a veteran making a long-shot challenge to Frank, responded, are you serious? You're really standing there and heckling me? That, that, that's really what you're doing? But this was downright mild compared to the brouhaha in Anchorage Sunday night when the founder of the news site Alaska Dispatch allegedly pushed a Joe Miller supporter and landed in handcuffs. And that was before the police arrived. Tony Hopfinger's captors were from the private security firm Drop Zone, which works for Miller's campaign. Drop zone. The manhandling of a reporter recalls the year's most flamboyant threat from New York gubernatorial candidate Carl Palladino just a few weeks ago. Bristling at questions from New York Post reporter Frank Dicker, Palladino warned, I'll take you out, buddy. How are you going to do that? Dicker asked. Palladino answered, Watch. Oh, Paladino, I got to tell you, I thank you. Thank you for Paladino. I mean, Cuomo is going to kill him by yeah, 20 points, but it's kind of nice to have him around. I'm beginning to realize that as grisly as this whole thing is, I am having some laughs. Some of the fuming candidates have backed away from their statements, but others have not. Indeed, Miller fully embraced Drop Zone's actions, and the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee released a statement this morning endorsing Conway's line of attacks against Paul. Okay, Rand Paul has yet to deny any charge regarding his membership in an anti-Christian society and or his activities as part of that group, the committee noted. And spokesman Eric Schultz insisted, Rand Paul's theatrical performances may be distractions, but they are not substitutes for answers. Well, yeah, that's the Aqua Buddha story. We'll be getting to that in just a minute. Got a lot of things 
things to do. These days are passing by me. I'm staring blindly at the view. I woke up one day older, just like ten thousand days before. And all at once, I'm hearing a quiet knocking on my door. Chances, sideways glances. I will let them be without me. Creation, celebration. I will let them pass me by, and nothing ventured, nothing gained. But all I see is loss and pain. So screw it. Sign that's missing half its letters, and it's getting dimmer all the time. Oh, bells ringing, choir singing. I will let them be without me. Moonshine and cherry wine, yeah. I will let them pass me by again. Here comes Foreclosure Gate. I love it. At a large Florida foreclosure mill, a manager signed up to a thousand documents a day without reading them, and employees were given gifts to speed up foreclosure paperwork, according to depositions released today by the Florida Attorney General's Office. 
The news, also reported by Tampa Online, comes as Bank of America, the nation's largest bank by assets, announced that it would resume more than 100,000 foreclosures in 23 states after an internal investigation of its practices. Florida authorities are investigating the law offices of David J. Stern over how it handled foreclosure paperwork. And this is a beauty. As the AP notes, Cheryl Sammons, an office manager at the law offices of David Stern, would sign 500 files in the morning and another 500 files in the afternoon without reviewing them and with no witnesses, according to Kelly Scott, a former assistant at the firm. The perks for good performance were considerable, according to Scott's statement. Tampa Online notes office employees were lavished with gifts. As a perk of Salmon's job, Stern's office would routinely pay her personal mortgage, a car payment, her electric bills, and her cell phone bill, according to Scott, who told investigator Stern also bought Salmon's a new BMW sport utility vehicle every year and gave her and other employees jewelry. Ah, foreclosure bling! Additionally, Stern purchased employee David Vargas a house, a car, and a cell phone, Scott claims in her statement. According to Kelly Scott's statement, Shell Ramos's marathon document signing sessions took place in an office conference room and would leave her wearied. From Scott's description, they would be stacked amongst each other side by side and Cheryl would come twice a day in the morning and mid-afternoon around 2 or 3 o'clock and she would sign all of them, every single one of them. Cheryl would give certain paralegals rights to sign her name because most of the time she was very tired, exhausted from signing her name numerous times per day. The poor dear, maybe it was all the bling on her fingers were weighing her down. You had to understand it was more than 500 files that she was signing morning and afternoon. David Stern had an especially close relationship with the mortgage giants Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Scott said in her statement, the lenders were considered his babies. Scott said employees would change codes to hide files when their representatives visited the office. Oh, this is a beauty. (laughs) Foreclosure gate and bling. I love it. Why, hello there, dear friends. I do love the sound of those sweet birds in my ears. Yes, that's right, I'm Reverend Bill Barnstormer, right here at the First Faithiness Church of Science. Fiction. Now today, I want to talk to you about the United Southern States of America, just about to close its borders to people of the left. And you can say thank you for that, that's right. The big word, now the important word in the South is united. Now if the South is united, why wasn't the U.S. united? Well, I'll tell you, because in the South, people all agree that faiths, no matter how ridiculous, should implant ideas in children's heads. Now, if we have faith in our ideas, why not get our ideas from our faiths and say thank you for that, thank you. Now, in the South, everybody has a closet full of guns and enough said about that. You can say thank you under your breath if you like. You know, that's right. They are united in their agreements. 
Uh, the only question now is should the USSA join with the Free Republic of Texas? And I'd, I'd say yes to that, but Texas wants to rename the USSA into the USST for Texas. Now, now dear friends, what about the, the desire of the SUU? Uh, the sacred Utah Union, and the USKAR, the United Kansans uh, Against Knowledge, to close their borders entirely to non-citizens. Uh, what about that? Uh, uh, so, uh, right now, I say thank you, and let them drive around Kansas and Utah if they can't stay to home, whoever they are. Now, what about, what about poor Indy Cal? broken up into dozens of independent counties, each with its own wine and cheese and drug lords. You know, all you can do in Cal is taste something and, and move on, drive right on. Nobody agrees on anything, because, cause, you know, it's up to your own taste. And can you trust a man whose standards is so low? Well, dear friends, we got everywhere else Obama's Socialist States Republic, the OSSR, clinging on, yes, in a few places. Well, that's okay, and say thank you for that, because it's about time we kept compassionate thinking in its place, and the aliens and the artists and the free thinkers all in, in their own place, where they can't be, can't be any trouble. So say thank you for that, and, and say for your thank you gift from me in $29.95 for Reverend Barnstormer's new Map of America, showing you all the safe places to live and, and build a fantasy, uh, build a family. Just check that Frigidaire magnet from my P.O. box and my church location, and say thank you for that, and I'll see you next time. This is my latest blog up on RadioFreeOz.com. This is a scary election, but it's also a lot of weird fun. I keep reminding myself how much is at stake, and then whammo! There's Rand Paul sparking up a college girlfriend, blindfolding her, and taking her down to the river to bow down before the Aqua Buddha. Come on, it doesn't get any kookier than this! And how about Christine O'Donnell, another stellar Republican senatorial candidate who did the nasty on a bloodstained satanic altar as a teenager? This is good stuff. And then there's Sharon Angle, the GOP wannabe senator, who tells an auditorium of high school Hispanics that they look like Asians to her. I'd have trouble making that up. And let's not forget, of course, Ron Johnson, the cheesehead running against Russ Feingold, who confronts record world temperatures and sees sunspots. Or Carl Palladino, the homophobic gubernatorial candidate in New York who runs the hottest gay clubs in Buffalo. Or Joe Miller up in Alaska who cuffs reporters when they get too close. These guys are a gift to anyone with a sense of humor. We will remember this midterm election as the final revenge of the crazy old white people. We will mark it as the final stage of the unraveling of the once noble party of Abraham Lincoln. We will look back at the two years of partisan gridlock and know-nothing finger-pointing that this election ushered in as the springboard to the new, new deal. The multi-ethnic, multi-age, super-smart, totally practical solution to the economic and spiritual catastrophe that Bush and his corrupt gang of power-mongers, bean-counters, and war-lovers have bequeathed us. 
Yes, dear friends, this midterm election is all that and a total hoot to boot. Give me that guitar. All right, everybody. It's a little song. Now, thank you very much. A little song I learned upstream in prison one day. Everybody sing along now. Ready now? This land is made of mountains. This land is made of mountains. This land is made of mud. This land is made of mud. This land has lots of everything. This land has lots of everything. For me and Elmer Fudd. For me and Elmer Fudd. This land has lots of trousers. This land has lots of trousers. This land has lots of mousers. And pussy cats to eat them when the sun goes down. Thank you very much. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. I think that the people at Walmart were listening to Oz when I interviewed Chef Jess about buying local food. Because according to the New York Times, Walmart stores announced a program this week that focuses on sustainable agriculture among its suppliers as it tries to reduce its overall environmental impact. The program is intended to put more locally grown food in Walmart stores in the United States, invest in training and infrastructure for small and medium-sized farmers, particularly in emerging markets, and begin to measure how effectively large suppliers grow and get their produce into stores. Would you believe it? Advocates of environmentally sustainable farming said the announcement was significant because of Walmart's size and because it would give small farmers a chance at Walmart's business. But they questioned how local, a $405 billion company with 2 million employees, more than the populations of Alaska, Wyoming, and Vermont combined, could be. Well, we'll have to see. Given that Walmart is the world's largest grocer with one of the biggest food supply chains, any change it made would have wide implications. Walmart's decision five years ago to to set sustainability goals that, among other things, increased its reliance on renewable energy and reduced packaging waste among its suppliers sent broad ripples through product manufacturers. Large companies like Procter & Gamble redesigned packages that are now carried by other retailers, while Walmart's measurements of the environmental efficiency of its suppliers helped define how they needed to change. No other retailer has the ability to make more of a difference than Walmart, the retailer's president and chief executive, Michael T. Duke, said. Grocery is more than half of Walmart's business, yet only four of our 39 public sustainable goals addresses food. In the United States, Walmart plans to double the percentage of locally grown produce it sells to 9%. Walmart defines local produce as that grown and sold in the same state. Now, when we talk with Chef Jess, it's stuff made right here on the island. But, you know, for Walmart, they have a, well, they just have a different structure. Still, the program is far less ambitious than in some other countries. In Canada, for instance, Walmart expects to buy 30% of its produce locally by the end of 2013, and when local produce is available, increase that to 100%. Our food business in Canada is brand new, so there's a lot they can do, said Andrea Thomas, Senior Vice President of Sustainability at a news conference. She said the program allowed each country to set its own specific goals. In emerging markets, Walmart has pledged to sell $1 billion worth of food from small and medium farmers, which it defines as farmers with fewer than uh, 50 acres. It will provide training for the farmers and their laborers on how to choose crops that are in demand and on the proper application of water and pesticides. Maybe they can do what Chef Jess does, what they can do a seed order before the season, right, and guarantee the buy. 
Both in the United States and globally, Walmart will invest more than $1 billion to improve its supply chain for perishable food. For example, if trucks, trains, and distribution centers could help farmers in Minnesota get crops to Walmart more quickly, the result would be less spoiled food, a longer shelf life, and presumably more profit for the farmers and for Walmart. Walmart said it planned to reduce food waste in emerging market stores by 15% and in other stores by 10%. Michelle Mouth Harvey of the Environmental Defense Fund, who worked with Walmart on the goal, said this is significant. As we've moved to reliance on key locations like California and Florida, she said, we've made it very difficult for local farmers to actually get their food to market. As Walmart is is doing with consumer products, it will be asking agricultural producers questions about water, fertilizer, and chemical use. The eventual goal is to include that information in a sustainability index. Customers would see sustainability ratings so they could decide whether to choose one avocado over another based on how efficiently it was grown and shipped. Although I think in these times, if one's a nickel cheaper, that's going to make the difference. Walmart could use index information when it decided from whom to buy. Finally, the company announced specific guidelines for the sources of its products, including a requirement that palm oil from sustainable sources be used in all its private label products, the Walmart house brands, and that any beef it sold not have contributed to the deforestation of the Amazon region because of cattle ranch expansion. While the overall goals include Sam's Club, the warehouse store wing of Walmart, that division also has other specific goals, including a 15% increase in fair trade of Rainforest Alliance certified flowers and produce. The Agricultural Sustainability Index was particularly noteworthy, said one academic who worked with Walmart on the goals. The index represents a real number that will mean improvement on the ground, improving ecosystem health, soil health, and food quality, said Marty Matlock a professor of ecological engineering at the University of Arkansas, which will move agricultural producers en masse. Well, hooray for Walmart. Now, why don't you just organize your people and give them decent health care? The fall is the sunniest time of the year And the mountains are clear every day but November it brings home the clouds and the rain once again December is many warm nights by the fire Reading stories and sipping some beer With the days growing longer the end of the winter seems near Sometime in March there's a magical day When the perfume of springtime appears And the flowers and trees of Seattle All bloom in the rain It's the time of the year When the money runs short And the smell of the sea is so strong when the boats are all painted, the fishermen soon will be gone. June is a-comin', the salmon are running, and I've got to be on my way. I don't want to leave you, my darling, but there's so many more debts to pay. They say that the catch will be bigger this year And we'll all come home rich in the end 
I don't want to leave you, my darling But the nets will be loaded by dawn June is a-coming and I must be rolling along When I came home last fall we were married And bought a small house seven blocks from the sound She got a job as a waitress, I worked for a friend At Christmas she told me she had a surprise But I'd have to wait six months or so I looked in her eyes and I wondered if I'd have to go Sit by the fire and I strum my guitar With my little boy singing to me And it kills me to watch him and think I'll be leaving again So I look through the papers and call up my friends But there isn't enough work around And I find myself walking the streets of a small fishing town June is a common salmon are running and I've got to be on my way I don't want to leave you my darling but there's so many more debts to pay they say that the catch will be bigger this year and we'll all come home rich in the end I don't want to leave you, my darling But the nets will be loaded by dawn June is coming and I must be rolling along June is coming and I must be rolling along Sunny news from the LA Times. What's the sunny equivalent of when it rains, it pours? Because that's what's happening in Southern California as yet another massive solar plant cleared the permitting process. This time it's the Blythe Solar Power Plant backed by German company Solar Millennium and planned for more than 7,000 acres and would be the largest solar installation in the world, doubling the amount of solar electricity the U.S. can produce. Interesting that the equipment is German. We've been saying this for ever so long. We're spending our money on war machines, not solar machines. Part of the stimulus is to change that equation, but it's going to take a while. We've blown it. The Blythe installation is the sixth in recent months to be approved for public land. Several proposed solar plants have been fast-tracked through the permitting process as they race to meet the December deadline for federal stimulus funds. One of those, the Ivanpah Solar Electric Generating System, is breaking ground Wednesday near Prim, Nevada. Winning final clearance to start construction from the Bureau of Land Management after getting the go-ahead from California authorities last month makes Blythe the first proposal of its kind to be approved for federal public land. The installation will deliver one gigawatt of power using parabolic trough technology. The process involves curved mirrors that gather the sun's rays, heating liquid that creates steam to run generators. It's like a nuclear reactor, except it's photons doing it instead of uh, 
what is it, uh, muons, nuons, neutrons, whatever. The multi-billion dollar Blythe project will consist of four separate 250 megawatt sections that together would be able to power more than 300,000 average homes, even up to 750,000 residences by some estimates. Maybe if those residents, of course, are equipped with power-saying appliances and shut out the lights when they don't need them and do a lot more with a lot less. The groundbreaking should happen by the end of the year, Solar Millennium said, but first, the company is in advanced discussions with the Department of Energy as it attempts to land a $1.9 billion government debt financing bond for the first two portions of the project, as several other solar projects have done. Construction is expected to create more than 1,000 direct jobs, as well as thousands more throughout the supply chain, the company said. Once built, the plant will support nearly 300 permanent jobs. The project, however, will have to share... The project, however, will have its share of impact on the environment. So, to mitigate any potential damage, regulators are requiring that Solar Millennium cough up funding to support more than 8,000 acres of habitat for native species such as the desert tortoise, the western burrowing owl, the bighorn sheep, and the Mojave fringe-toed lizard. Hey, I love it, man. Anything I can do for the Mojave fringe-toed lizard and cut down the use of, of oil consumption is just okey-doke with me. Antelope Freeway, this lane, exit. Yeah, I think I'll take the old antelope. Less traffic. Easy, Antelope Freeway, one mile. Clean up our media. Antelope Freeway, one mile. Chili Avenue. Let's see what they got in this car. Let's see. We got Antelope Freeway, one mile. Lights, wipers, defrost, temperature and climate control. Antelope Freeway, one thirty seconds. See what kind of climate I can get. Antelope Freeway, one sixty. Winter Wonderland. Antelope Freeway, Spring Fever. Indian Summer. Freeway, one Tropical Paradise. And Tropical paradise. I think I'll give it a try. Wow. What a groove. A tropical paradise. From the Huffington Post, one out of every 34 Americans who earned wages in 2008 earned absolutely nothing. Not one cent in 2009. That's 3% of the workforce. The stunning figure was released earlier this month by the Social Security Administration, but apparently went unreported until it appeared today on Tax.com in a column by Pulitzer Prize-winning tax reporter David K. Johnson. It's not just every 34th earner whose financial situation has been upended by the financial crisis. Average wages, median wages, and total wages have all declined, except at the very top, where they leap dramatically, increasing fivefold. Do I smell a revolution? Johnson writes that while the number of Americans earning more than 50 million fell from 131 in 2008 to 74 in 2009, those that remained at the top increased their income from an average of 91.2 million in 2008 to almost 519 million. The wealth is astounding, said Johnson. That's nearly $10 million in weekly pay. These 74 people made as much as the 19 million lowest paid people in America who constitute one in every eight workers. 74 people in the country made together as much as one-eighth of the entire workforce, 12.5% of the entire workforce. Something is really out of kilt. 
Johnson sees the depressing figures as a result of government tax policies maintained by politicians with an eye on re-election, not good government. And there's a ton of them. It is the latest, and in this case quite dramatic, evidence that our economic policies in Washington are undermining the nation as a whole. We have created a tax system that changes continuously as politicians manipulate it to extract campaign donations. We have enabled free trade that is nothing of the sort, but rather tax-subsidized mechanisms that encourage American manufacturers to close their domestic factories, fire workers, and then use cheap labor in China for products they send back to the United States. This has caused enormous downward pressure on wages, and not just for factory workers. Combined with government policies that have reduced the share of private sector workers in unions by more than two-thirds, while our competitors in Canada, Europe, and Japan continue to have highly unionized workforces, the net effort has been disastrous for the vast majority of American workers. And of course, less money earned from labor translates into less money to finance the United States of America. It's time for a change, a big change, and it ain't going to come from the top. It's going to come from the middle and maybe, if we're lucky, from the bottom. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County, there are no neutral... From the A's to the Z's. A's for Alaska, where wingnuts abound. B is for Bilderberg, deep underground. C is for coal, dirty fuel, dirty grave. D is the Dems with a Congress to save. E's the electorate, angry and scared. F is the fascists, well-paid and prepared. G is the GMO food on the shelf. H is the harm it can do to yourself. I is for Islam, but which one by God? Is J for their justice or endless jihad? K is for Karzai and his dope-dealing bro. L is for how long he will last when we go. M is Mahmoud Ahmadinejad's fist, which he shakes when he says that his nukes don't exist. O's for Obama. I'm so glad he's there. P's the people who think that he's Saladin's heir. Q is Al-Qaeda, Osama's vile thugs. R is Rydia that pays for their weapons and rugs. S is the stimulus, vision and plan. T is the Tea Party, duped to a man. U is unmanned drones flown from far, far away. V is the innocent victims they slay. W is the prick who put us in this hole. X is the factor we'll never control. Y is the question, must our country begin this ground zero sum game that no one can win? If we rise above gender, wealth, power, and age, put an end to this flag-waving, book-burning rage, just tend the garden, play our parts, take our ease. We can rebuild the future from the A's to the Z's. Well, the end of another lovely show at the beginning of another lovely week, David, and time to Get a little chinoisie here. Okay, a little chinoiserie. This is Han Yu, early 9th century, probably. 
Oh, Hanyu. We haven't used Hanyu before, have no, I we? Think he's a, I think he's a new one. Huh. I'm now reading out of a wonderful collection, 3,000 years of Chinese poetry. Well, I that will that never... should keep Oz going. We should be able <laughs> to like out. Chinese you every day for a while. Absolutely. Sunflower Splendor is the name of the book. But this poem, this is a wonderful poem by Hanyu called Poem on Losing One's Teeth. Ooh. I got to hear her. Last year, I lost an incisor, and this year a molar, and now half a dozen more teeth fall out all at once, and that's not the end of it either. The rest are all loose, and I know there's no end till they're all gone. The first one I thought, what a shame for that Athene gap. Two or three, and I thought I was falling apart almost at death's door. Before, when one loosened, I quaked and hoped wildly it wouldn't. The gaps made it hard to chew, and with a loose tooth, I'd rinse my mouth gingerly. Then, when at last it fell out, it felt like a mountain collapsing. But now I've got used to this. Nothing earth-shaking. I've still twenty left, though I know one by one they'll all go. But at one tooth Per year, it will take me two decades, and gone, all gone, will it matter? They went one by one, and not all at the same time. People say, when your teeth go, it certainly ends near. But seems to me life has its limits. You die when you die, either with or without teeth. They also say gaps scare the people who see you. Well, two views to everything, as Chuang Tzu noted. A blasted tree need not necessarily be cut down, though geese that don't hiss be slaughtered. Hmm. For the toothless who mumble, silence has its advantage, and those who can't chew will find soft food tastes better. This is a poem I chanted and wrote to startle my wife and children. Well, it startled me, I'll tell you that, absolutely startled me. Well, there it is, Radio Free Oz, uh, brought to you by the Oz team that makes it all possible. I'm your host, Peter Bergen. David Osman is our co-host. Dave Maloney is our audio engineer and runs the gorgeous Blue U Studios. Phil Fountain's the head of the Oz Design Group. What a wonderful illustrator. Scott Wilde designs the website, does our social um, media and social networking. Kelly Brewer's come on board. She's syndicating us and publishing with us and doing a lot of work on the upcoming Ozine, which is dead center for the Ozineers. Uh, Tom Goodwillow is our webmaster and doing a wonderful job. And our forensic accountant and dear friend and voice of reason is Chaz Glass. See you all tomorrow. Ozineers.